Hello and welcome back to Doctor Informed. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 8. This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection. Doctor Informed is primarily for those doctors working in hospitals, taking you beyond medical knowledge and talking about all of those things that you need to know to be a good doctor but which don't involve medicine. I'm Clara Monroe, a general surgical registrar in the northeast of England, and I work as a freelance clinical editor at the BMJ. In our new season of Doctor Informed, we will be discussing topics relevant to hospital doctors, those coffee room conversations that we have had, or wish we'd had earlier, that give us light bulb moments but are nowhere to be found in any of the How to Be a Doctor books. For those of you who have been missing their Doctor Informed fix, or for those who are eagle-eyed, we have had a little break over the bleakest winter months, but now the spring is beginning to creep up on us, I am so pleased to share some super exciting topics to see the second season out, so watch this space. Starting with today, we will be talking about a big one for hospital doctors, sleep. We are joined by our amazing expert today who has been working hard for many years to improve understanding about sleep and fatigue and campaign in our hospitals for more support around night shifts. Rue McCrossan, thank you so much for joining us. Please will you introduce your lovely self to our listeners. Oh, thanks so much for having us, Clara. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Um, so my name is Rue McCrossan. Um, and I started doing work into fatigue when I was a trainee in anaesthetic and I'm now an anaesthetic consultant and still very much work overnight and I'm often in the hospital overnight. So I think some of this stuff is just as relevant to trainees as consultants, as SAS doctors and it's, it's for everybody really that's in the hospital overnight. And I've been part of the Fight Fatigue campaign which is a joint campaign between the Association of Anaesthetists um, FICM, so the Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine and the Royal College of Anaesthetists and we're campaigning really to improve um, rest facilities in hospitals and also education about fatigue because there's lots that all of us can do to try and make this a little bit better. I am so excited to pick your brains. Um, our panel guest today is Aisha who is back with us on the podcast. Aisha for those listeners who have not heard you on the pod would you like to reintroduce yourself? Yeah, hi Clara. Thanks again for having me. My name's Aisha, um, Aisha Ashmore, um, and I am an Ovs and Gynae trainee in the East Midlands. Love them or hate them, night shifts are a reality for most of us working in hospitals. Quiet or busy, the misalignment of your circadian rhythm can have huge effects. A brief Google of facts about working night shifts makes for some pretty frightening reading, and I have selected a few that jumped out at me which were from reasonably reliable sources. From a 2015 study of 74,862 nurses, the nurses who work night shifts were up to 11% more likely to have died early compared to those who work day shifts. Furthermore, there was a 38% higher risk of dying from heart disease and a 33% higher risk of death from colon cancer. And last but not least was a 2004 report in the American National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, which found that workers across a variety of occupations who worked 12-hour night shifts were more likely to experience daytime somnolence, no surprise, but also to smoke and abuse alcohol. I could go on, but I won't, because for those of us who work night shifts, we probably already feel gloomy enough about them as it is. Um, Rue, I first read your name as an expert who wrote, to date, one of the most popular BMJ articles, What to Eat on a Night Shift, and this will be linked in the show notes. Um, Before I ask you what to eat on a night shift, I want to know how you became interested in um, some of this stuff around sleep and fatigue, um, apart from the fact that you're a nephetist and therefore are a professional at making people sleepy. Indeed I am, (laughs) yes. (laughs) But apart from that, I think one of the things that got me interested in this actually was because I trained less than full time I was a trainee for absolutely forever it felt like so I qualified in 2003 and I didn't CCT until 2020 so it was quite a long time and a lot of night shifts in there but the (laughs) thing that got me really interested and started off all of our work actually was an absolute tragedy um, which was um, opened the paper one day like it was on BBC News I think it was and there was an article about a trainee anaesthetist that died on the way home and that was 2016 I think Um, and it was Ronak Patel was his name and there was this just tragic story of him doing a set of nights and driving home and um to try he was quite tired so he wound down the window 
and he was talking to his wife on the phone to try and stay awake and she was pregnant at the time so she was sort of in her third trimester I think and he um suddenly the phone went dead and he'd ploughed head on into a lorry and died at the scene basically and that was it just felt so so close to home and I think all of us on the trainee committee at the association at the time all of us realized that could have been us and we felt like we were in a position to actually do something about this and so that's what started off all the work really yeah I think it's you sometimes think with these things by the grace of God has it not already you know happened to somebody that you know or yourself um so really really admirable for you to be getting involved in that I think everybody's got those stories when you chat to people don't they like in the coffee room oh yeah I hit the curb or I knew had an accident and it just became this it almost had become normal that that's what happened after a night shift and it doesn't need to be like that and we don't need to be putting ourselves at such great risk really and that's what this is all about it's about how do we do this a little bit better and we're never going to not work at night are we we're always going to have to be there the hospital is not going to shut its doors but it's how we do it a little bit safer Aisha, uh, as an obsangani reg, you are notoriously busy overnight. Have you got any night shift horror stories? Yeah, well, actually, I have recently had a bit of a near miss driving home. Oh, no. Um, so just actually on the way to to a night shift rather than on the way back. But I guess, mm. you know, a lot of people think that you're really, you're most tired driving home from a night shift. But I always find that that first night when you drive in can all can be really really challenging as well mm. um but there's i mean like um Rue said everyone's got a horror story um and certainly um in Obzengaini you know we do have really really busy nights and in our region we do have um some horror stories from trainees who have had incidents after coming home from a night shift too I just wanted to say, although we talk about the stories, we felt that that kind of wasn't enough because everyone's got the stories, but no one believes you, do they, until you like collect evidence about it. So that was why we yeah. did, um, like we did a big survey and it was because we were anaesthetic trainees, we did it in anaesthetic trainees and we surveyed over 2,000 of them. So that was, um, wow. I think it captured two thirds of the entire anaesthetic trainee um, population at the time. And you're not the only one, Aisha, because um, 85% of people said that they were too tired to drive. Um, after night shifts um, and 57% had had an accident or near miss when driving so that's pretty horrific really yeah um I want to explore more about people's experiences um on working night shifts but first we must have a message from our sponsor what would you do if you received a letter from the GMC did you know that over 37,000 complaints were received by the GMC in the last five years If this happens to you, having the right support can make the experience a lot less daunting. If you receive a letter from the GMC, it's important to have professional protection and the support of an expert medico-legal team by your side. What sets medical protection apart is the range of benefits that can assist and protect NHS consultants like you throughout your career. This includes support for managing unwanted media attention and protection for Good Samaritan Acts worldwide. Don't be caught off guard. Get protected from just £549. Join now at medicalprotection.org. Data source, GMC Fitness to Practice Report 2023. Cost quoted is the annual membership price for a UK medical consultant working exclusively in the NHS, subject to protection requirements and underwriting approval. Okay, back to the show. I'm interested, Aisha, you mentioned that it was actually when you were driving to a night shift. Why do you think you were, why do you think you were at risk from that near near miss experience in that particular scenario compared to, to, to any other day that you were driving? So this, this particular incident happened on my way to my first night shift. And I think flipping from days to nights can be quite tricky. So when you have just done a day shift and then you need to kind of work out a situation where, you know, I like to try and stay up for a bit the night before a night shift and then try and sleep in a bit. But then if you get that slightly wrong, then you end up not sleeping at all. And I think in that particular instance, 
um, I, I was a bit tired. And then unfortunately, a lorry didn't see me because it was the M1 and there was spray and the cat's eyes aren't very good on that particular stretch. And, and yeah, they had a near miss and ended up on the um, hard shoulder. So I think it was a combination of factors. But but it's scary, isn't it? And it's something that can happen to anyone. Yeah. I, I mean, Rue, I've heard you talk on other podcasts about the huge effect that uh, lack of sleep has on driving, um, particularly some of the stats about how it compares to being over the legal limit um, drinking alcohol. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, so it's interesting what Aisha said about the like preparation for your night shift, because actually what's really important is the number of continuous hours that you're awake. So when you do a night shift, the thing you need to do is reduce the number of continuous hours. So you can have a lion in the morning, but it's really, really helpful if you can manage to have a nap in the afternoon before you go to work, because again, that's reducing that time. So when um, there was a study done which looked at kind of the effects of alcohol and blood alcohol levels and and compared it with the effects of fatigue and staying up, basically. So when you get to 14 hours continuously being awake, which actually will be most of us probably on a long day at work if you put the commute in either side, you get significantly reduced alertness. And when you get to 21 hours, that's when the scary bit happens. And that is equal to being over the drink drive limit in, um, in the UK. So at 21 hours, that's when you're hitting your really danger time. So it's it's really important. We're all aware of that. And if you look at just accident risk kind of within work, it increases exponentially. So when you get to eight to 12 hours of continuous work, your accident risk doubles. Wow. And actually that 21 hours sounds huge. But anyone that's done a night shift, um, much like me, I cannot sleep during the day and I have tried absolutely everything. Um, and I will share my hacks because I have got a few things now that I feel really work for me. But, you know, I'm not somebody that goes home after a night shift and just gets into bed and like has a lovely sleep. So it's actually that 21 hours is not that difficult to almost talk yourself up to. Um, and then I start thinking, well, you know, fine, driving home is bad. But what about the decision making and making when I'm at work as well? Like it, I would never go to work drunk. I'm sure most of us wouldn't. Um, So would we go to work, you know, having not had enough hours to make a decision because we are, you know, essentially the same as being drunk? I don't know. I I don't think that's anything I considered until I'd heard you talk about it. And I think it's just, it's really important, isn't it, to think about. The one thing that's really, um, that you mustn't forget as well is fatigue really affects your perception about your decision making. So not only do you make bad decisions, but you're much more likely to take risk and you don't realise that you're even doing it. So it is very worth being aware of kind of all the research around it because it's all quite new stuff, really, just so that you know that actually maybe it's four o'clock in the morning, I'm quite tired, I'm just going to double check this with somebody else. And, you know, there's a reason, isn't there, like why we don't do operations on people overnight unless we absolutely have to. And it's worth bearing that in mind as well. Like we, we shouldn't be taking people to theatre or doing procedures unless we absolutely have to overnight because there's an extra risk there for that patient. And at the end of the day, what we want to do is do give the best possible care that we can to our patients. And I think, you know, it's it's in- very interesting what you say about your perception of your own risk, because actually we're not taking those risks for ourselves. It's not like, you know, are we doing something a bit dangerous that might affect us? It, it We're taking that risk on for a patient, which is a huge thing. And actually, you know, they probably, I don't know if we consent patients for that really to say we're going to do an operation, but we're probably not going to be as good at doing it because we're slower or we're making different decisions at that time in the morning. Um And actually, I think if we gave most people the option when we really laid those risks out, maybe, you know, patients would want different decisions made as well. Um, Aisha, is there a time when you've thought, I need to make a decision about something at work, but I physically am not in a, you know, in the mindset where I can make the best decision. (laughs) And in those decisions, in those situations, what have you done? So I have a bit of a second opinion hour. <laughs> so between the time of three and four o'clock in the morning, I just find that my brain just doesn't function as well as it would do at any other time. And um, I, and I'm always asking my senior reg if I have one or my consultant at that at that time if I'm making big decisions um, or even mid- midwifery coordinator. What do you think about this? Because I feel like this is the time where I'm not going to make a good decision. 
Um, and it was interesting that you're talking about operating as well, Clara, because, you know, we, we operate quite a lot at night because, you know, you've, you've just got to do a cesarean when you've got to do a cesarean. And and I always think to myself, God, I, I wouldn't want to be operated on by myself between the period, between the hours of three and four in the morning, because it is so it's so different. You just feel like a different person. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm, I'm sure y- you must feel, you know, anyone who operates at that time <laughs> at night feels the same way. And there's a, there's a reason for it as well. So you know your circadian rhythm, you have like these peaks and dips. So the peaks come like in the morning and then you get another one later on in the day. But you also have two dips every 24 hours. Um, so the first one is kind of your postprandial dip. So after lunch, you might feel a little bit sleepy, but obviously we're all awake then and we're used to kind of managing that. But the other one is between two and four in the morning and normally you're asleep. Mm. So obviously that's not really a problem, but it's a massive problem if you're awake because it's actually like working when you, you've got terrible, terrible jet lag. So it's interesting you picked out those particular times because they are our, our absolute danger times really. And that's the time where we need to be like checking, double checking and actually thinking, do we really need to do this? And I totally get it about, like, I'm an obstetric anaesthetist, Aisha, so I completely get it. Like, you have to do the section when you have to do the section. Yeah. But, you know, it's all about only doing the ones we absolutely need to do and not doing that Cat 3 one that could wait. And that's the other thing about, you know, doing the Category 3 section at 7 in the morning. That's not a really safe thing to do. We should be waiting for the day team to come on. Um, totally agree. <laughs> Um, just going back to, I just want to finish off the bit about driving, Rue, because I know that we've we've had conversations about this before, and I've definitely heard you speak about it. Legally, where do we stand, or where does our employer stand if there is, God forbid, an accident on our way home from work, and we are implicated in that accident? Yes, yeah, so I think it's really important to talk about this, isn't it? Really, so. The way things stand at the moment isn't fantastic from our perspective. So your employer has a responsibility for you driving for work. So, for example, during the day, if you had to commute between two different hospitals, they would be responsible for that. But they don't have any responsibility at the moment for you driving to and from work. And I think that's something we possibly we're trying to campaign on to sort of change. So the way the law stands at the moment, they have a duty of care for you um, for mental health, safety and well-being of employees. Um, That doesn't include driving to and from work at the moment and I think the only way that we can possibly change that is by getting fatigue onto the risk register and getting employers to recognise this as a problem they will not sort this out until I think we push a little bit harder on that and there's been some like quite I don't know if you've seen in the news recently like just before Christmas there was a junior doctor in Bradford I think it was um, he was post nights. He's actually been um, had a custodial sentence for crashing into four pedestrians at a zebra crossing after his night shift. Um, so there was just this his decision to drive home has ruined sort of five lives just in an instant, hasn't it? And you feel that the employer does need to bear some responsibility for that. But but saying that, if you provide rest facilities and we don't educate people about why they need to use them, that you know that's another problem as well. We all need to know why we need to sleep after a night shift and everybody gets get homeitis don't they you're desperate to leave the building um yeah. and <laughs> I was like that I was I couldn't bear to be there another minute so I actually used to sleep in the car and I had a travel pillow in the car and I'd put extra money in the parking and I would just sleep for like an hour or so have a proper nap and then drive home that's really disciplined because I struggle with that. I, it's that like you can see the finish line and you're like, I just want to be in my bed. I do know that there is a 45 to an hour and a half commute between me and that bed, but you just think, well, I'll just push through it because it'll be okay. And then you hear stories like that. Yeah, and then there was um, also there's been a nurse, Gillian Picks, that was um, banned from driving because she had an accident on the way home and crashed into another vehicle. So basically in law there's kind of no no excuse for driving tired. And in terms of, I mean, you mentioned rest facilities and um, things like that. Is there an obligation for the NHS to provide that or is it just advice at the moment? It's just advice at the moment. And if you think about, I mean, there's some hospitals, new hospitals that have been built that don't even have proper um, coffee rooms and places for people to have their lunch. So we, we, we kind of, and all the on-call rooms started to disappear when we went on to shift work and we stopped having 24-hour on-calls and they just got turned into offices. So part of, a big, big part of our work is trying to get rest facilities back into hospitals and thinking about it in a little bit of a different way because you can't always have this amazing on-call room. But there are lots of places in the hospital at night that are not being used, like outpatient clinics, for example. 
So there's one hospital I've worked in and we've managed to get um, fold out sofa beds. So they look like nice sofas in the day that are used in counselling rooms and at night they fold out into a single bed. So at least there's some somewhere for somebody to go. And we've also arranged for people to be able to book a room um, after their night shift if they feel too tired to drive. There's too tired to drive rooms and you just go to reception and you ask for one of them and you can kind of sleep off your shift before you drive. So those are the kind of things we want to, to get into every hospital. I think there's this horrible guilt and I don't know Aisha I'm interested to know if you get this as well where I mean I remember having a conversation with my consultant recently and saying you know I was at a new hospital and I was like this hospital really loves well-being and you know we talk about it all the time but there's nowhere for me to sleep overnight and he said oh we've got this you know well-being area and I was like yeah but there is bright light and blaring tvs with sports on at three in the morning like I You know, I am not going to be able to have a sleep. And also I get this guilt where I'm like, someone will find me sleeping and tell me off and I'll be sacked. Um, And I don't know how much of that is true, but, you know, you feel like you're sneaking around like this dirty little secret having like a 20 minute power nap. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Am I allowed to do that? You absolutely should be having a nap. Totally. And like, but but we need to change culture because there are those people, aren't there, that walk around the hospital policing it, saying you're on a shift, you don't need to nap. Those are the people that we need to change and we need to educate. Because, you know, nobody would say, oh, it's all right if we lose a few, would they? Like, because you're tired and you've crashed your car. That's completely <laughs> unacceptable. And, no, to, completely unacceptable. And, and the, the thing that makes people crash their cars when they are driving and they're tired is something called a micro-sleep. So I don't know if you've come across that. And it's when you're, like, absolutely critically tired and your brain just, like, shuts down for a couple of seconds. The thing that's scary about them is you don't even know that you've had one and they just sort of creep up on you and can happen at any time when you're that tired. And they think that's what happens. You have a micro sleep when you're driving and that's when the accident happens. If you can have a nap on night shift, um, it prevents micro sleeps happening. So that's why they're so important. So we want to encourage people to power nap and it should be everybody that's in the hospital at night. I want to come back to napping and nappuccinos (laughs) and all of this like science behind naps because... My God, I had no idea that there was all this evidence about how to nap. Um, But I really want to go straight back to the start. I know we've talked about driving and some of the experiences we've had. Um, But I want to sort of run this through as if we're about to start a set of nights. So you wake up. So let's say we're starting our block of nights, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. What is the best way or what are the hacks that the two of you have had or developed or what's the science behind it um, about how to prepare for your first night on a block of night shifts? So the one thing I would probably say is get to know yourself as much as possible because you really need to know how you sleep and what works for you. And everybody sleeps kind of a little bit differently. So it's important to know, like, are you a lock? Are you an owl? Um, improve your If you improve your core sleep, like generally day to day, you're much more likely to tolerate night shifts better. So that's quite an important thing that I would say. And like for me personally, it was like blocking out that day in the diary because the rotor just says off, doesn't it? And I'm like, no, it shouldn't say that. It should say pre-nights because actually that day is all about sleeping and getting ready and for that night shift. Um, So for me, it would be like a line in the morning and then I would have an afternoon nap and like get my dinner ready and then go off to work. I have I've actually tried a lot of different things because I really struggled with this flipping situation. So I tried. So my first thing was, okay, I'm going to stay up to like 2 a.m. in the morning, 3 a.m. in the morning, you know, have a massive Netflix session, um, watch everything I was going to watch and then try and lie in for as long as possible. But then I find that I just end up waking up at a normal time anyway because I'm an early morning person. So now I'm get, I'm trying to like go to bed a little bit later, wake up a little bit later, but not like a massive lie-in, and then in inverted commas, rest in the afternoon because, you know, like you, Clara, I just cannot sleep in the day at all, full stop. I was just about to say, even if you're lying in your bed and you're not sleeping, that's still rest and it's better, isn't it, than than getting up and about. But there is a little bit of an art to napping in it. There is a skill to it and you can learn it with practice. It doesn't, like, just happen, do you know what I mean? (laughs) So it is worth persisting and seeing if you can do it. (laughs) Yeah, I think when I was in F1, I definitely tried that, Aisha. I tried all the different methods. Yeah my first night shifts and there was those times where I was like I'm gonna stay up I'm gonna stay up till 3am and then inevitably I woke up at 6 30 and now I was like I'm starting a night shift with three hours sleep um the best method that I have found and I'm sure you'll have much more many more clever things to say about this really than me but 
First of all, is understanding that you should always sleep in 90-minute cycles because that kind of mimics your REM cycles. So you, if you wake up in the middle of one of those cycles, you feel absolutely dreadful. But if you get your full 90 minutes, you feel much more rested. Um, so I always try and sleep in a 90-minute cycle. But I actually find, because I'm such an early morning person, that let's say I was starting my night shift on a Monday, I would get up at 7 in the morning, having gone to sleep at sort of normal time, do loads of activity in the morning, but absolutely not touch caffeine in any way, which is really, really hard for me. So go on a long walk with the dogs, go to the gym, go and do all my supermarket shopping for the like night shift preparation. And then I go down for a sleep at about two. And now I can usually sleep till between five and six. So I actually reduce that time that you're talking about, really, that like the time that you're awake, um, especially if I can sleep till six, because actually then you know, I'm actually awake for probably, well, if I get back to bed at like 9, 10 the next day, it's, it's not unbearable. And I think that sets me up a lot better. But when I limit myself to napping now, I'm always like, a nap is either 90 minutes or three hours or four and a half hours. It's never like a random time like it used to be. That's interesting you said that because um, there's one, t- the one time I had a nap at work, the one time the emergency buzzer went off in the middle oh, no. of that, of in the middle of this 90 minute period. And I just woke up and I was like, I don't know where I am. I like, who am I? <laughs> what am I meant to be doing? It, it really does hit you. Like you don't know anything if you wake up in that cycle. So that means you're, you're waking up. You've described really nicely actually something called sleep inertia, which is when you wake up in phase four sleep. So if you're power napping overnight, so power napping comes from like the aerospace industry and NASA. And so if you're like on a long haul flight, for example, the crew have a nap schedule and they'll all be having these like short sleeps. And you should be having quite a short sleep, really. It's about 20 minutes, but it should take you 15 minutes to get to sleep. So your break needs to be longer than 20 minutes. Um, but if you have too long a sleep, then you fall into phase four sleep and you get this sleep inertia where you feel really groggy. You don't know who you are, where you are, what's going on. Um, so that's what's happening there. And you probably need to shorten that nap if you're if you're sleeping at night for that. But Clara, I like your um, your bossing your night shift. I quite like that structure into the day. And I think the caffeine thing's really important, isn't it? Because caffeine's got a very long half life. Um, so avoiding caffeine, um, like you should be having it before lunch really and then that's it to try and help you get to sleep the the other thing I was going to ask you guys about is is the rooms that you sleep in have you done any things to make the room nicer to sleep in I have what I call the slow cook setting on a heated blanket which is (laughs) the most luxurious thing and I I actually feel ashamed to be talking about it because it's really bad but I've got a heated blanket that I normally only use in the winter but for my night shifts I put it on level one which is like yeah, it's just like a slow cooker and you get into it and you're like, oh, I'm in the womb again and it feels lovely and it's the only thing that really keeps me asleep. So there's a physiological basis actually for what you've just said. Did you know oh, that? Amazing. <laughs> so one of the things we advise people actually is to help them go to sleep is to have a hot bath or shower because it vasodilates you and that's probably what your blanket's doing because to sleep properly, you need to drop your core body temperature by a couple of degrees. So you do need to vasodilate. So your blanket's probably helping you out with that and you're meant to have like a cool room and um, but be nice and cozy in bed and then I'm someone that needs it properly properly dark I can't have like a chink of light anywhere so my husband's actually put um, a blackout blind and then he's um battened the blind so that you know the gap at the, at the side of the window he's yeah. covered that even so it runs in like a, wow. a thing so you, there's no light coming through the sides and then we have blackout curtains on top and that's and then I used to wear earplugs as well like wax earplugs so they couldn't hear anything because that's what I needed to sleep but like like I said everyone needs to find their little hack and what works for them have you got any tips Aisha I'm obsessed with my fan so I've got a fan with a with a remote control it's great doesn't the noise (laughs) keep you awake it would drive me mad no it's kind of like it's kind of like white noise you know how like babies need some babies need white noise to sleep so I have I also have an electric blanket or a hot water bottle depending on which bed I fancy on that day um (laughs) But I need to change it up a bit sometimes. So, um, but yeah, blackout blinds, eye mask, and then the most important thing in my life is my fan. <laughs> so as I said, the white noise thing is probably quite relevant. And that's something that you can use if you live somewhere that's a little bit noisy in the day. Or like if it's summertime and there's loads of kids playing out and it's summer holidays and you need to sleep. White noise is really, really good for drowning out like the background noise to help you sleep. 
really interesting. I feel like we should have done a paid partnership with like yeah. a fan company <laughs> and a heated blanket company. Yeah. And the other one as well that I, I bang on about all the time is my silk eye mask, which... Um, oh, yeah. I definitely have one of them. One of my friends works in like the beauty the beauty industry. That seems like such a vast thing to talk about. But um, she got me this pillow, like it, I can't remember what it's called, but it's like a silk eye mask. And I remember seeing it in Phoenix, and it was 60 quid. And I was like, there's no way on God's earth I would have spent 60 quid on this eye mask. But, um, but it really works. It works. <laughs> and it's only because I got it free that I now use it. And it's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> but it's like a gentle weight on your eyes. So it keeps keeps like on your face because I think the problem I find with a lot of eye masks is they like slip about a lot. Clara, I think I'm uh, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I think I may have actually bought that eye mask <laughs> for, for that amount of money. <laughs> yeah, we don't really deserve to go on strikes when we're spending sixty pounds on a on a silk pillow <laughs> eye mask, do we? No, I'm joking. It's it's a, it's an investment. So we've we've talked about how to start start the day, and I'm gonna come back again to naps because I, I keep keep hinting that we're going to talk about nappuccinos because like oh, this is one of yes. my favorite things to talk about um <laughs> but the next thing i want to talk about Rue, is your celebrity topic which is food um, indeed aisha what's in your typical night shift lunchbox and then i want Rue to analyze it and tell you if you're doing things <laughs> oh right my god so i'm particularly bad with my night shift food um because okay i'm gonna tell you and you're gonna be like this is horrendous <laughs> so I normally start off with like a proper, so I get up and have dinner and I'll have like a normal size dinner and a, and a coffee usually. And then I will spend the entire night nibbling on Haribo and Mawam all night. And, it, and that's the only thing that gets me through. And probably about five cans of caffeine free Pepsi. Um, and that's how I do, and that's how I do nights. <laughs> Oh, wow. Rue, I would ask, what do you think of that? But I can see from your face what's going I, on. I think in we head. all know. What... <laughs> I don't think I can condone a diet of a Haribo and Mawam. <laughs> I know my dentist is very obsessed with me. <laughs> so the problem is, like, I guess, like, if you want to talk about the sort of the science side of it for eating or night, um, you kind of shouldn't. Is the is the sort of bottom line you shouldn't really eat between midnight and six because that's the time you're normally asleep and your body's totally not used to it so there is actually a higher risk of type 2 diabetes if you work night shifts and that comes from the eating when you're not supposed to be eating because your body um if you take like fit and well people and you feed them like a big carbohydrate load or lots of mawam overnight um they'll get a massive spike in their blood sugar and you can make really fit and healthy people hypoglycemic um, so that's kind of what we want to avoid when we're on night shift. So that's why we tell people, try your best if you, to not eat between midnight and six. But, you know, this is real life, isn't it? And sometimes you just need to and you need food. Totally get that. So the, the best thing to eat is something that's high in protein or is very slow release carbs because that you want to avoid that spike in insulin, basically. Um, so, yeah, things that um, like like hummus, boiled eggs, or just pr- protein heavy things are, are the best things to eat, really, because they're going to last um, and they're not going to cause that big spike in your blood sugar. But literally, all you want to eat is donuts, isn't it? And, and nice food. But that, there's a reason yeah. for that as well. Because when you're tired, your sensible bit of your brain, your prefrontal cortex, which sort of moderates all your decisions, gets a bit tired too. And that's the first bit to go. So you suddenly think that all these things look delicious and they're just the right thing for you to eat at the time. So it's very hard not to eat cake on night. But there is a, there is a reason why you shouldn't because you just can't really deal with the calories properly. Oh, this this puts to shame the classic um, theatre coffee room midnight buffet that always happens. It's always somebody's birthday. Someone's <laughs> always retiring. There's always this like buffet that's laid out that sits out for about five hours yeah. and you just pick up between like, yeah, midnight and 5am. That's, yeah. And you're um, well, boiled in- egg and hummus. Have you got any <laughs> other together. suggestions? Because <laughs> that sounds awful. <laughs> I used to I used to just eat a proper meal before midnight basically but just get it in before before you cut like my cut off for eating was half 11 just get the dinner in and then actually you're fine and I was one of those people that used to graze three nights until I found out about, about all this stuff and I was like oh my goodness what am I doing to myself and weirdly I never needed to eat and no matter how busy we were um keep drinking lots as well I'd say definitely keep hydrated stick to water if you can but you know whatever you need to do but definitely you know drink plenty and I just never needed to eat until the morning 
So it kind of worked out all right in the end. But just, yeah, just a proper well-balanced meal, I would say. Something with a bit of, you know, that's going to fill you up. Something that you like to eat. Something that's tasty, obviously, because it's night shift and it's miserable. <laughs> it needs to be not as a nice boiled and... egg dipped in hummus. <laughs> yeah, not, that, that would be my snack if I was desperate. But I just wouldn't eat, basically, between between till the morning. And then I would have breakfast in the morning. Yeah, I get really bad. Um, what my friends have branded as night sorexia, which is like, I just can't eat on night shift. I get nauseated. I feel awful. But getting the meal in before 12 has been a real game changer because if it's after 12, I just feel sick and then I'm tired because I haven't eaten and I'm groggy and irritable more so than normal. So, um, yeah, I think that maybe not boiled egg and hummus, but like, I mean, I, I don't know if this is right, but I eat a lot of like pasta on night shifts, like quite beige foods, which doesn't sound like slow acting carbs. No, but, gonna, um, you could swap it for brown, pa- like wholemeal pasta though, couldn't you? Oh, uh, yeah, okay. And then it would sort it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, point taken. Um, See, so. It's interesting that you feel sick if you eat after 12, Clara, because there's one time I was like, right, we've all worked really hard. I'm going to treat everyone. So we ordered KFC. And it was the worst thing I'd ever done in my life because I was just dead after that to the point where I think the midwife coordinator called my consultant in because she was like, <laughs> I just not looking very good. I, she's gone like she's like gone completely white and looks like she's going to collapse um so <laughs> i get that <laughs> it's not like dumping syndrome like you've you've yeah. initiated some sort of like physiological hypoglycemia from eating the wrong thing at the wrong time yeah um, never again never again um <laughs> so now moving on to the next stage of our night shift we're finally gonna get to the nappuccino um Let's say that I'm clerking someone in A&E and it's 4.30 in the morning um, and I've done all my food bits and my preparation the day before, um, but I've written the same word four times and I've had this weird (laughs) fever dream conversation with a patient about what their red and blue pills actually are. Um, And I realise, obviously, at that point that I'm like, I need to have a bit of a power nap and just reset if that's, you know, possible at the time. What is the best way to nap? So the thing we're advocating is the famous nappuccino. <laughs> so yes. this, is a cafe- this is a caffeinated nap. So there is a bit of a research background to this. And um, you should try it. It totally works. But it definitely works for me. So you have a cup of tea or coffee and then you go off to have your nap. So there's a couple of things, isn't there, about the nap that you need someone to hold you. If at all possible, get somebody else to hold that bleep so you're not going to get woken up. Um, it depends on your work environment, obviously, and if you're the only person in hospital or that kind of thing. We often like for the intensive care doctors, they often will say to the nurse in charge or like for um, when you're on delivery suite, I you could say, couldn't you, to the, the midwife in charge, I'm just going to go off for a nap now, like only emergency calls only kind of thing. So you can protect that time. So have your coffee and your tea and then you go to sleep. So the whole point of this is by the time that caffeine is absorbed, that takes about 20 minutes. And that's kind of yeah, your ideal length for your power nap. So you're going to wait up and you're not going to feel all groggy you're going to feel amazing because the caffeine's working and you've had a sleep <laughs> so that's the point of that one <laughs> but you need, I love this you need somewhere to rest as well don't you so that has got to be a quiet dark room and I think the ideal standard is going to be somewhere that you can lie down flat yeah I was talking about this to one of the consultants they were like can't you just sleep at the desk and I was like when was the last time you tried to do that? Like, I can't sleep sitting up. So we actually wrote some standards for um, anaesthetic departments to accredit to. So that's gone through the Royal College of Anaesthetists. They're called AXA standards. So that's a, you could um, rate your department, actually. There's a RAG rating of, um, but the, the top gold standard would be quiet, dark room um, with a bed to lie flat in. So that's the ideal. I was livid to find out that the the anaesthetic trainees overnight did have a rest space, but it was only available to the anaesthetic trainees. And it's a sleep pod that honestly looks like, um, I don't know, it kind of looks like a weird space missile. It's just, I mean, I don't know. I, I think I'd get really claustrophobic in that because it kind of looks like a coffin. You like lie in it and it like comes over your head and then obviously you're completely engulfed in it. Um, like a sunbed, I suppose. That's the other thing. I think of Final Destination when I look at these things now. I'm like, <laughs> oh, I don't know. You don't want to get in that. Um, but yeah, I think I think I always feel like the anaesthetists are much more forward thinking about rest space yeah. and fatigue than... I think it's um, all about specialties. I think it's because we're just quite safety aware and we feel that this is a massive safety issue actually for us and our patients and it's it's not an impossible thing to solve is it like I said there are places where you could go and sleep aren't there in the hospital like you know outpatient clinic is empty overnight there's lots and lots of places we can be sneaking like little beds into 
and um, all sleep pods. I mean, the sleep pods come from Japan, don't they, from the pod hotels. So that's where they come from because they stack. So you can get a lot into a small space. But as Clara said, they're not for everyone. If you're a bit claustrophobic, it's probably not ideal. <laughs> they're also really expensive. I was hearing Very. that they were like three and a half grand for one of these coffins. Um <laughs> And I was like, I would be so happy with like a lazy boy that like just kicked out and I could like just be sort of semi recumbent for about 20 minutes. So yeah. um, I think I think there is also sometimes people overcomplicate these things. It's like people just want to lie down flat in a dark room. They don't you know, necessarily need a, uh, a torpedo to send them to sleep. I totally encourage everyone, though. Think about where you work. Where could you lie down overnight? Like be anybody that works in a theatre setting, there's trolleys everywhere, aren't there? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I've I've taken to finding going in one of the labour rooms some occasionally because for some reason, like you said, Clara, the anaesthetists have a really good setup. The the anaesthetic team have an entire bed and room and everything. And the obstetricians don't have anywhere in in my current trust. And it's just like, where do we go? So, you know, if there's hopefully if there's a room free... <laughs> which isn't in use but you end up on this like weird bed where you know you can half the time you know the beds you know they then sometimes if they're a little bit um malfunctional you end up in lithotomy by accident (laughs) (laughs) one you wake up from your nappuccino in lithotomy yeah that that could be misread couldn't it Aisha, you mentioned flipping nights. Um, so when you finish, let's say, this uh, fictional run of nights, uh, Monday to Thursday, so you, you finish work at, like, you hand over at 8, 8.30 on Friday morning, you drive home because you feel safe to drive because you've had your nappuccino and you're, like, well-rested. What what do you do in order to, like, flip your nights so that you can be alive for the weekend and not completely waste those three days? <laughs> Again, this has taken a bit of trial and error, but what I try to do is go to bed for for a few hours. So if I get home around, like, let's say half ten or something like that, I'll try and sleep until about two. And then set about 20 alarms, because waking up at two is so hard. (laughs) So set like 100 alarms and, and make sure that I've put an alarm somewhere that I actually have to get up out of bed to, to, to go and turn it off. Um, and then get up, get up and then try and do, you know, don't not do anything particularly, you know, strenuous, but then try and go to bed at a normal time. So that, that day is a bit like, mm, I don't get much done, but it does mean that I do set myself up for the, for the rest of the days that I have off and can actually be productive in those days. That's absolutely that spot on, Aisha. Science-based. Oh, t- it totally <laughs> is. Well done. You're absolutely bossing it. So it's all about resetting. So have a short sleep in the morning, then get up. And that's the hardest bit ever, as you said. It's horrendous, isn't it? But force yourself out of that bed. And then that evening, go to bed at a normal time because you want to just get back into that normal rhythm as quickly as possible. Bear in mind, right, every time you have any period of sleep deprivation, you accrue a sleep debt. And it takes time, that debt has to be paid back and it takes time to pay it back. So for example, it takes two nights of normal sleep to completely recover. So if you finish nights on a Friday, you're probably not going to feel all right until Sunday. So it's just worth bearing that in mind with kind of what you're planning. But it's all about getting back to normal as quickly as possible. When you haul yourself up out of that bed at sort of two o'clock, I should, a really good thing to do would be get some sunlight if there is sun. Um, there isn't mm. always. <laughs> um, but that, again, will trigger your brain to kind of reset to, to daytime and daylight. And this is what we need to do now because our, our circadian rhythm is very much controlled by the sun. So that's helpful. Yeah, I think it's that um, I limit myself to those that three-hour REM cycle when I come off nights like the the sort of go to bed three hours and it is hard getting up but I think it's easier if you're not waking yourself up in the middle of one of those cycles because that thing you've said about stage four sleep and not knowing where you are is so familiar like you just feel like you've been run over by a train and the last thing you want to do is get up but um it does definitely help if it's like the summer and it's a, a nice sunny day and the weather is good have you got one of those um sunrise alarm clock things they're brilliant so they wake oh, you up no, I don't. so i'm very light sensitive which is why the room's got to be completely blacked out for me to sleep during the day 
but um, they wake you up really gently and that avoids that kind of sleep inertia thing because the light comes on very slowly and you can set it over like 20 minutes, 10 minutes, whatever you prefer. It gradually wakes you up and then an alarm goes off. So they're quite useful. Some people might find them helpful. Um, I, I've got really obsessed with tracking my sleep. So I got a, you know, an Apple Watch for my birthday. And so now I'm like analysing my own sleep patterns. And so I've actually just come off nights. I just finished nights yesterday. So I've been trying to work out, you know, how long I need to sleep to not be in a REM cycle. This probably isn't something for everyone, but um, it's my new obsession. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, um, Rue, I've heard like really mixed things about this. Firstly, has everyone got the same length of REM cycle? And secondly, is tracking your sleep and thinking about it a good thing? Or does it make you sleep less because you're thinking about it so much? I think it totally, with that, I think it totally depends on your personality, doesn't it? Because some people will gain a lot of information by tracking their sleep. Because you're essentially like you know, in the olden days, you'd be keeping a sleep diary. That's what your your trackers, your fitness tracker is doing, isn't it? So then you know what your the right amount of sleep for you is, don't you? You know, if you wake up and you feel amazing, you're like, well, what was it about that night? You can look back, can't you? Which is actually quite useful, I think, because that helps us manage our sleep day to day. Um, but you do get people that get very anxious about sleeping, don't you? And they're, they've got insomnia, they're lying in bed and they're like, oh my God, I can't sleep, I can't sleep, I can't sleep. I need to sleep, I need to sleep. For those for those people, I'd probably suggest like if you are struggling and you can't get to sleep, just think that's okay. I'm just going to get up for a minute, do something and then I'm going to try again. But getting worried yeah. about it is not the, the right way to do it because that will stop you sleeping. I was thinking about this when we were preparing for this podcast. I was thinking about the amount of colleagues I have who... Um, have young children and therefore haven't slept for like three years seemingly which (laughs) sounds really unfun and then they're working on a sleep debt and then they're preparing for night shifts is there anything they can do apart from to um, you know farm their children out or just to make them sleep more Um, you know is there anything they can do to prepare if you're going into nights with a sleep debt already the one thing that I would say, because obviously I've had three children during training and my kids are quite young. I was actually up at two this morning with one of them. <laughs> and so you do, but... Topical. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, we did one study, a pilot study actually, at one of the hospitals where we got eight trainees to wear sleep trackers and one of them had young children. And although she was up every night, she was still actually getting eight hours sleep because she was getting a four-hour block and a four-hour block. So she was actually meeting her sleep needs, which was pretty amazing and, and kind of unexpected, I guess. Um, there's a couple of things isn't there I think if you're on nights and you know you're on nights it costs more money but I used to put them in childcare um just so that the house was quiet and I know not everybody is in a position to be able to do that but I did try and make sure that I had childcare pre and post nights just so that I didn't have to do that and I could rest and recover and be there for the kids rather than just be as like a zombie in the corner um so that that's one thing I would suggest and the other thing is if you're we do need to get to a point don't we where if you are too tired to be at work you need to be able to say I'm not coming in today. I am too tired. I have been up all night with a small baby. And I think that's completely acceptable. Like we've got to a point, I think, in anaesthetics where if someone rings me and the night has been, like they don't need an extra pair of hands, but the night has been so busy that they haven't stopped, I would just come in. I wouldn't think anything of it because I ex- you know, need to be accepting that people do get tired and their performance drops. And, you know, we're there as the consultant to make sure everybody's all right overnight. And I will come in if somebody just needs a rest. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good tip. And I think, uh, you know, what, going back to what you said earlier about seeing your pre-nights and your post-nights day as as much of a working day as the, all the in-between bits. Because, I mean, I used to think of it as I was like, oh, free day off. And actually, you know, I should be plugging all my effort into preparing to be, you know, physiologically and psychologically okay for that night shift. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's a really good one. Um Rue, we are getting to the end of this conversation, which I'm really sad about because I feel like I could talk to you for hours about it. Um, But to tie everything off, what are your sort of top three tips or reflections or things that you think are really, really important that you've um, either mentioned today or haven't mentioned that you've come across when you've been doing this work? I think the absolute number one tip that I would say is get to know yourself and your sleep because everything else will follow from that. Because every and sleep in a way that works for you because everybody's different and that's what kind of makes it hard to sort of prescriptively say you should do this this and this because everybody's got little tweaks and needs some people need less sleep some people need more sleep 
So that's my number one tip. My second one actually is um, it's about your core sleep day to day, not just the night shift stuff. And I set an alarm to go to bed. This is my thing that I need <laughs> because it, I will always wake up at the same time because you get into a pattern, don't you? But I'm really, really rubbish at going to bed because I'll just do this and I'm just going to do that and I'm just going to do this <laughs> or I'll just watch another episode of this. So um, I've started setting an alarm to just make sure that I get moving and I get upstairs because you need to be able to give yourself the amount of sleep that you need. And everybody knows what time you need to go to work in the morning, don't they? <laughs> so make sure yeah. you get to bed on time is the other one. And um, I guess one thing we haven't touched on, actually, is um, like alcohol and caffeine. We've touched a little bit on caffeine, haven't we, about that it's got a very long half-life, so try not to have any after lunchtime. But alcohol's the other one. I'm, I'm not going to tell you to not have a glass of wine because I think everyone should have a bit of fun now and again. But um, just bear in mind that it affects your sleep and it makes you go... You feel like it helps you sleep, don't you? But it actually, it makes you go to sleep quicker, but you're much more likely to wake up in the night and have disturbed sleep. So that's just something else to bear in mind. That's really interesting because my friend too is very obsessive about her sleep tracker. Says that every time, even if she just has one glass of wine, the quality of her sleep is just significantly reduced even by that, which, you know, the amount of times, I know that we all do it as medics, we have a stressful day and we think I just need like, I'll just have a glass of wine to sort of wind down and actually you don't realise you're probably doing a disservice to yourself. Um, Yeah, really good points. How about you Aisha have you got a couple of top tips that you've you know throughout your trial and <laughs> trial and error <laughs> of different ways of getting through nights you found works for you oh top tips from me are yeah that alarm that to that post night shift flip is so important like it a lot and I, I used to like just sleep all day and wake up and then it would completely ruin me um so my top tip is make make yourself get up (laughs) yeah and unfortunately I am too old now but one of the things I used to do which was probably really really bad was if especially if I'd done a Monday to Thursday I would go out on the Friday um get in at like 2 a.m probably quite drunk and then I'd be like why do I feel awful over the weekend it's weird (laughs) how I just can't flip my nights but I think we all know the answer to that now so um thank god for getting old (laughs) um Rue uh last year I just want uh you to let our listeners know where they might be able to get more resources you've mentioned lots of the work you've done where can people find out more about this or or even get involved with asking their trusts to sort of change their mindset about sleeping so I think a really good place to go would be the Association of Anaesthetists website. It's www.anaesthetists.org. And if you go to, um, there's a wellbeing section and or you can put fatigue into the search bar and there's loads and loads of resources there. I totally recommend having a look because we've got something called the Fatigue Pack, which has lots of posters in it all about night shift to kind of educate people. So if you do do anything from today, do one thing, go to the website, download them, print them out and stick them up all around your department because you're not just helping you, you'll help somebody else too. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Rue. And thank you so much, Aisha, for joining us on this episode. Um, And thank you for all of our listeners for listening to Doctor Informed. I'm really sad that's all we have time for today. Um, Because like I say, I think this is such a broad topic. And there's, you know, thank you for sharing those resources because there's so much more to say about this. Um, We're always really keen to hear from our listeners for ideas of future discussions and reflections on the topics we've discussed today in the past. So please get in touch. If you like our show, I'd love it if you could support us by leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts or share with the people you know. Tell your friends about it. It really helps people find us. If you'd like to hear other episodes, please subscribe to Doctor Informed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from and you'll be notified of when our next episode is up. Until then, goodbye from us. Bye.